0: Hi, this is Sean Brown, and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. Innovation's a hot topic in today's fast-changing environment, and while there are a lot of theories around innovation, there is often not as much practical insight. Eric Roth, who heads up our innovation practice at McKinsey, recently had a chance to discuss this topic with Beth Comstock, GE's former vice chair, CMO, and leader of GE Business Innovations. Beth is also the author of the recent book, Imagine It Forward, and sat down with Eric in our New York office to talk about her experience driving innovation at scale. Now over to Eric. Beth, thank you so much for thanks,
1: joining Sarah. us. Thanks, It's great to be here. And oh. What a great view we have today, so thank you.
2: It is a spectacular day here in New York. Yeah. We, uh, we survived the storm yesterday, so yeah. that was good. You know, you're the, uh, one of the first innovation leaders for our podcast series. What we're hoping to do is talk to people who have really been in the trenches, been there and done it, made organizations change, created tremendous value through innovation, uh, and have the stories to tell about it. So thank you for joining yeah, us. Thanks for having me. You are a self-described change leader and innovator with almost three decades of experience leading change at GE and across all of its different businesses. Um, When you left GE as vice chair, you spearheaded GE's innovation transformation with notable initiatives like the well-known Echo Imagination. What motivated you to write this book now? You know, if you're an executive, a CEO or another executive, what are the one or two things that you hope they'll take away from it?
1: Yeah, well, thanks for asking. The book's Imagine It Forward, and I I wrote it for a couple of reasons. One, I was coming to the end of my GE run, and I wanted to capture what had happened. I wanted to capture it especially for the people in the middle of the organization, the middle managers, the mid-career people who just need a little encouragement, maybe a kick in the butt every now and then, and some tools and tricks of the trade. And for leaders, just to say, here's some tips and tools for you, too, But I think innovation is really hard in most companies. Everybody goes forward with the best of intentions. Most people want to innovate, but they get caught up. And I wanted to capture the grittiness, the messiness, the hard work that is innovation and change.
2: If innovation requires messiness, how do you design in messiness to particularly a large organization. Yeah,
1: well, one, I think just a mindset that says this is going to be messy. I came to really appreciate the value of having at least two lanes or two speeds in your organization. I talked in the book about a three-box theory we used. For the sake of simplicity, I think let's just focus on two. You've got your sort of now and your what's next and new lanes. And you have to allocate capital for them differently. You have to think about the measurements differently, the kind of people and ideas that you're working on differently. And what happens is most people just glom them all together. It's a big jumble, and um, and then we go, oh, see, I told you that wasn't going to work. An idea is too small in the next lane when you're comparing it to something that's fully at scale. You don't have a profit in the next lane. You don't. Sometimes you don't even know if you have a customer. And yet, you're trying to get your P&L in shape. So there's just a series of things that I think companies can start doing differently, just by a clear delineation of a now lane and a next lane.
2: All right. So let's unpack that a little bit. We very often find ourselves in conversations with CEOs, and they will say something to the effect of, "I really want my organization to learn a new gear, to grow through innovation more predictably, more consistently." I have recently talked about this at some speech in front of my leaders. I told them where we need to go, and now I'm really frustrated. Nothing happened. I don't see the action happening. What are they getting wrong?
1: Well, I think the intent is really good, and I do believe most CEOs want to make that change. I, I believe them, but the people haven't learned how to swim a new way in the new lane. Um, I came to appreciate the value of having coaches. So I think not only do you need the right kind of money and budget set up to fund some of these new efforts, you need different kinds of people. So probably the team leaders are going to need permission. They're going to need room to get out and discover. They're going to need people who just want to seed new ideas. They don't want to operate at scale and that makes people nervous. And I do believe in having good coaches. It's almost like a little voice on the shoulder of a team leader that's helping you navigate that.
2: So a lot of organizations, leaders might hear what you just said and say, ah, great, we've set up an incubator. We have our little accelerator over here. That's going to be the answer. Although we have lots of experience says when we visit those side organizations, you know, 12 to 18 months later, it doesn't look so pretty. There's some prototypes sitting around. There's some really frustrated, great talent and you look at the value that's been created and it's negligible. Why is that not the right answer for your second lane?
1: Well, I think sometimes it is part of the answer. I, I do believe in having accelerators or groups that are set up to test and learn and um, push some of the ideas forward. It's really ideas against a strategy. So one, you have to assume that you have a good strategy. Sometimes people are just testing ideas because that's what the competitor is doing or because they don't fundamentally believe it. They don't, they don't believe they have a strength in doing it. And so I'd say, do you have a good strategy?
2: And what does a good strategy look like for innovation? Because we do get a question very frequently, is an innovation strategy different than a regular strategy? How would you think about that?
1: Innovation strategy to me is like, where are you going next? What is your unique value proposition? Why do you exist? Mm -hmm. That's important for now and next, but can you answer that? Yeah. Um, And then what problems are you trying to solve for your customers? How do you know? So I think you're asking different questions in that next lane that help you form what that strategy is. And sometimes it's just, what's your hypothesis? We have a hunch. We have a hunch that plant-based foods are going to be big in the future, but we're a cow dairy farm. But we have a hunch well why do you have that hunch what are you going to do about it you're going to wait until one day everybody's drinking pea shoot milk yeah. or are you going to actually get out there and see what's happening
2: so how do you get an organization particularly a large one to chase hunches often there's this need for proof before you go explore and we run into this challenge all the time where all the time you can't get an organization who has maybe a lot of good ideas yeah. or some great hunches or the people within the organization, the permission to go pursue them. What are some of the things that companies should be doing to allow for that?
1: Well, I think it is a recognition that part of business is operated on hunches and hypotheses. And I used to get at G GE a a lot of, from people who doubted that would be like, you're a dabbler, that's just dabbling. That's never gonna amount to much. And yet you can go back and trace in anything successful, usually it started out as some kind of hunch that you had to dabble around. We always had an experimental budget. I'd like to say it should be 15% of your budget, your time, your people. Maybe one year it's 5%, whatever. But you have to make room for that. it's actual resources and funding. It's actual resources and it's part of your operating system. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And so what are you trying to accomplish there? To me, it's a speed to learning. You're trying to de-risk your way forward. So. You're as much trying to find out what isn't going to work as what is going to work. And that's where people get confused. They're like, oh, but that failed. Mm -hmm. But now you know not to spend any more time and money on that. What what big companies do, and I saw this time and again, and I was guilty of it too, we throw money at problems that we think money is going to be the answer to. If only you have enough money, you can get there faster, bigger, you'll get to scale. Sometimes you have to actually know who you're serving, validate that you have the right offer. Do you even know how to make money? And money's not going to solve your answering that.
2: What's a good example of a problem you threw money at and you realized somewhere along the way that that wasn't actually the right answer?
1: Um, One that was very painful was when we were doing a lot of clean tech development. We were big on solar energy, battery storage, and we had a really good technology at GE out of our R&D lab. And um, the mistake was, one, a, a faulty assumption that the technology is just like it was in an old industry GE used to be. And so we knew how to do that based on past history. It was not at all like the plastics business. It was a totally different business model. We had one customer, and the assumption was, well, you have one customer, so if we just throw money at it, Uh, Think how fast you can get to other customers. We hadn't validated the business model with one customer, and we got ahead of ourselves. So a lot of money went into the battery factory. We built it $100 million later, um, and we still only had one customer. And then it puts a totally different dynamic on the team that was this entrepreneurial team that had to figure out a business model, and could the technology work at the same time? And here they were put into a bind where now you have to just sell more. Sell more of what? We don't yet have the product and we don't have the business model. And before you know it, it's a $200 million write-off. And I've seen that time and time again, um, that people mistake money and past history for what you need to go forward.
2: We, we actually talk a lot about that with companies we work with. Um, we like to frame it as their confusion between assertions and assumptions. Yeah. And what always surprises me is how business plans are laden with assertions, whether it's based on past history or confidence on the future, but it's a list of here's what we believe. And decisions are made based on that almost being proof versus what we try to encourage, which is what do you have to believe? What are the assumptions underlying a given opportunity? And how do you then set up your plan to go test and learn about those assumptions to figure out hopefully early on, before you spend a lot of money, whether you're on the right track or not. right. But there's this confusion between the need for this proof and the storytelling of you know, whether it's bravado or assertion, or whatever, versus the humility of being able to have a more honest conversation yeah. around what are these real assumptions that go into this exactly. and why does that not occur more frequently well, in big I'll, companies. I'll,
1: Let's keep with this case study of the, uh, of the sodium battery that didn't work. We started to tell big stories. This is a billion-dollar battery on its way to a billion-dollar battery business. Silicon Valley has nothing on us. You start to believe the myth mm-hmm. that you make. The evidence we would have needed was okay. What is that customer actually putting money against? What is the recurring business model? Can you get from one customer to the next?
2: So why did that question never get out? Like how does that? Because this you get happens so over and over caught up in yeah. the
1: story of it and the belief that we know how to do this. See, we yeah. did it before over here. We've got a lot of money. We know how to get to scale. It's a little and bit of corporate what, pride. That's what big companies, they are. That And I've met so many startups that would benefit from working with big companies that do know scale. So that's that's right. Big companies know scale. But at that Tinder stage, that small little toddler needs a different kind of nurturing. It needs an entrepreneurial leader who's willing to try five different business models at once. What the entrepreneurial leader could have done and tried to do, but the system wouldn't let him. Was say, give me just twenty-five million. I don't want a hundred million. Mm-hmm. Give me ten million. I'm just going to build a really small battery factory. We're just going to go after this segment and that. And let me prove it here. Don't box me in. But you get caught up in the the proof. The bravado. we all know that
2: the, the one certainty that happens in most big companies is if you. Give someone a budget, it will get spent. Exactly,
1: exactly. But basically, it's just a better capital allocation model where you're saying to your innovation leaders, your job is to test the most number of ideas with the least amount of money. So you're measuring the idea throughput, if you will. Yeah, but you're funding too many ideas. You're not killing them fast enough. You're putting too much money in them before their time. All those things start to eat at the budget. So when you liberate people to kind of test the most ideas with the least amount of money. And then with confidence scale, it changes the dynamic.
2: So this sounds like this second system that you were talking about before. What other things have to be true or have to be included in this other operating model?
1: Well, I think truth. uh, You say true, and I think truth is one of them. Um, There's a lot of theater that goes with innovation. Um, I'm sure you see it all the time. In fact, that's a lot of your job, I think, is to dispel the innovation theater.
2: Yes, we've been kicked out of many conference rooms for doing that. And
1: I'm sure it's a fine business model for some, but it's not very sustaining to just show up and say, we've all dressed up in our innovation clothes, we have a nice space, but yeah, you actually have to deliver something now. We yes. have
2: a little tracking statistic that's the correlation between foosball tables and innovation <laughs> success. It's uh, it's negatively correlated.
1: <laughs> I think that's a good one. We also had a phrase we adopted, and it's been used against GE, but it came from a really good place, this notion of success theater. This idea that you want to always tell the boss, like, things are going great. Yeah, things are really great. You know, our battery is, joy- we're, we're going to make it. We're going to get there, as opposed to coming in and saying, you know what? We're not ready yet. We're not ready for that. The truth is, this thing's not good yet. How do you
2: enable someone to have the courage to be truthful like that? And to be sympathetic to the the innovation team leaders, it's really hard hard. to bring bad news to an executive team or whomever you have to report to. How do you help an organization grow that muscle.
0: First
1: of all, I think those innovation team leaders, we've all, I've been there, we're, we're masochists, right? We just keep coming back and keep coming back, punch me harder, punch me in the face, do it a little bit harder. So we're sort of prone to like that for some weird reason. That was a part of the reason I wrote my book is like, why am I in quest of this? But we're in quest of better. We believe in better. We've seen the opportunity. We believe it. It's like rocket fuel. So I think that helps you build some of that courage so you've got and to find, confidence. Figure
2: out who those people are yeah, somehow. Exactly. Yeah.
1: And I think there are many of them in your organization and they're just waiting waiting. to be liberated. I do think you have to change the questions that the leadership team asked. Questions like what's not gonna work? Mm -hmm. Tell me what the customer didn't like. Tell me why you feel so confident about this. Really digging into that as opposed to how quick are we gonna get to profitability? Uh, That's always the question, and that's Mm -hmm. the wrong question to ask.
2: So these questions sound a lot like questions around provide evidence. Yeah. Is there a world in which you ever step back as you're trying to do this and say, gee, you know what, this is so hard. Maybe big companies shouldn't innovate. Maybe we should just go buy things and scale them. To your point, big companies know scale, and that's a better model, although... If you look at the data on corporate venturing and others, you would say, well, that doesn't seem to work either. That was my
1: conclusion, and and I saw both of that at GE. I mean, I came into the role as Jeff Immelt came in, and after a great run at Jack Welch, which was a lot of growth by acquisition, but you couldn't keep growing that model, wasn't sustainable as time's kind of proven out. I keep coming back to this, but it's often easier in a company for people to acquire a business than it is to grow it on their own, just what's counted on the books, what isn't what Wall Street's expecting in accretive earnings versus not. So you've got all that you have to work through. And it's just hard. It's hard to grow things. That was our conclusion exactly. We went back and did a pro forma of all, at one point of all of our acquisitions against plan. And, you know, you've seen all these plans. They're all hockey sticks to the sky in five years, whatever. Very few of them actually worked out that way. So acquisitions rarely met the plan. And the integration into the company is always hard, too.
2: Did the organic ventures that you created, did they perform better? I don't know if you ever looked at it, but was there any evidence to suggest that they actually perform better relative to the Yes and no.
1: I think in the situations where we had patience, and that's the other thing that's in short supply is patience. Mm-hmm. Our ventures team, we hired really great people who knew what they were doing. They had a really good track record, and it was after a lot of having to say, like, hold off. Remember, we told you to give us five years, and they'd come in at three years, You know, the finest sure. team. We need you. No, you you told us five. That was the only way we started to get some good returns on that was because we bought patience.
2: Well, do you think uh, executives have an unrealistic expectation yes. when it comes to innovation? Yes. Why is it? It's
1: just because people think it should be easy. We all read the books of everybody else who's done it. And we think, well, like, how did they do it? And, if you know, I'm smart, too. Um, so I think there is this fantasy land that we think it's, you know, pick season magic dust. And there is the Wall Street factor. And-, and um, I think it's a really strong leader that can look at their investors and say, look, I can really deliver for today based on what is known, and and I feel confident, and I'm also planting for tomorrow, and it's a different set of metrics, and you're going to let me do that. Not everybody feels comfortable doing that.
2: Coming back to this capital allocation question, I didn't want to gloss over it because it is something that often I believe companies do overlook. There is some, call it wiring, that needs to be in place to allow for portfolios of these test and learn opportunities to thrive. When you think about the differences in a capital allocation model for innovation, what are some of the critical components that have to be true in your mind?
1: One, I think you don't need as much money as you think you do for the what's next and new, at least those early stages. Because, again, I keep coming back, you're building confidence into the system so you know when to invest more. So I think that's a fallacy. The second thing is people try to claw back the money. They have a tough quarter. They have a tough year. Oh, sorry, we can't innovate this year. What? Are you crazy? Uh, you need to innovate now more than ever, but that's usually where you start having the tension and where the innovation leaders and the teams, you know, either get fired or leave and discuss because they don't have any money or people to work with. Um, so I think those are two kind of sets of running rules that you have to agree to. On the
2: first one, I find it interesting that it's often hard for a team within a large organization to do anything in a small budget because they're so used to having resources that when you run it through yeah. the corporate system, everything adds up to a million, two million dollars right. for the same thing that if you went out to a startup, they're doing it for ten thousand dollars. Exactly. How do you
1: break out of that? Well I think it's a mindset shift. In every big company I've ever worked for, you're like squirrels hurting your nuts or something. You're like afraid if I give you back money, you're gonna give me back less next year. Right right? right. right. So we all play those games and What we came to learn is that if you can come up with this system of this throughput of ideas and see how little amount of money, and you knew that the money wasn't going to go away, so that then you're able to take that money with more confidence and put it against things, you're just changing the dynamic. You're not protecting the money to protect your idea, you're protecting the money so that you can find new ideas and that you can put more money to work on more things. So it's a mindset shift.
2: And one of the things that we try to do with executives is we say, don't focus so much on the ideas, focus on the portfolio, exactly. like take exactly. the portfolio value. And then if you're focused on that, then any number of ideas can go through that portfolio, exactly. just like your personal investment portfolio, you're willing to make trades as long as it grows exactly. over time. Does that ever come
1: up? Yeah, and that's why I like that three box strategy. You're now, you're next, you're new and different models of allocation. And I think every leader, and certainly the teams I led, when we'd look at the plans, you'd say, give me, give me your strategies and your plays there. I want your budget against that. I want, what are you taking out, not just what are you putting in? Um, so absolutely, and I think that's one metric to hold to if you're a CEO, back to when you're saying, mm-hmm. what's the portfolio view look like for PL by PL? What's the new revenue from new sources? I mean, some of these things, and they become vogue to ask once or twice and then they disappear because you go back to the old way that's where a CEO like with some discipline no new revenue from new sources how are you tracking
2: and what are the other key metrics because you know there's always the classic ROI that sneaks in and they're using you know ROI metrics which are really more appropriate for the now versus the right. next exactly what's the way that they should look at that for a next
1: well I do think the portfolio view um, is a good one it's really in the new phase as much mm-hmm. as in because really you're starting at new you're validating it then you move over to next then you move over to now I mean that's in yeah. your time horizon could be 10 years in doing that. Um, so I think that throughput of ideas in that new phase is really a good one. I think the time dimension, you know, how long it's going to take you to get profitable, you're not going to ask that in the new box, but you're going to ask that in the next box. Because yeah. that's what next is all about. You're there to prove the profitability. So then you're feeling confident you can scale it. So each box has a different set of metrics and, mm-hmm. and questions.
2: So I was just with the CTO of a very large company the other day, and he is um, in this debate with his CFO around how much they should invest next year in their portfolio. Yeah. And it is a debate as to some of these are new technologies, which may or may not lead to the breakthroughs of the future. Others are things that support the core. And you can imagine the discussion is very quick to say, well, just focus on those things for yeah. the now and the next stuff, well, you know, we're under a little bit of pressure for earnings. So let's just divert that or claw that back. Um, What's the right way to have that conversation with that CFO?
1: Well I think likewise you need to, to put your ideas and efforts into some sort of portfolio matrix. And um, and I think not be so greedy. I think what often happens, I'm not saying the CTO was greedy, but you think if I don't ask for the money now, I'm never going to get it. Back to the conversation There's this philosophy. Is if, I,
2: if I let it go now, it's not coming it, back. Exactly. Right?
1: And I think you have an obligation to the company, and, and it'll prove it to the CFO, to show them how scrappy you can be. Yes, there are the high-level cybersecurity things that cost this, but... Here's the scrappiness that got us to give you confidence that we're going to spend that money wisely.
2: So let me flip the conversation around. Another situation, different company, um, a couple weeks ago, very scrappy team. Very cool proposition, new business model. All the executives after the pitch, so excited. They wanted to pour money into it. Mm -hmm. We were saying, time out. Don't do that. How do you prevent that from happening? Well, I think
1: saying, no, don't give me that money. I will not use it responsibly. You are creating risk. By giving me and expecting things with a return on that money that I cannot deliver. So
2: in a world where, you know, in many organizations, getting that is a reward. Your idea has been approved. You get a big budget, team, staff up. That could be a promotion opportunity. Who knows? So back to your middle man. You said tools for the middle. It often is the middle. I think you're
1: changing your mindset. It's not a reward. I'm carrying the burden of risk here. I'm putting a lot, my career, my team, if we take on more than we can do, we're carrying a burden of risk. So I do think you're constantly modulating the risk. I came to learn a lot about venture capital, not that I'm a venture capitalist, but by hiring some good ones, working, partnering, it's no different and we're seeing it in the venture capital world now. I've seen many a startup company where the investors just threw money at the founder. And the founder would say, yeah, bring it on. It's a strong leader that can go, no, I don't want that. I can't use that money now. I would like it at
2: this. So, so unpacking the idea and saying, you know what? I really just need to prove X. Yeah. If I can prove X, then, then, then more money is OK. Exactly. But I'm not comfortable until I've got the confidence that we're on the right track. Right.
1: I was talking to a startup founder recently. And um, you know what a difference six months made for her in terms of her ability to go back to investors with an incredible pipeline. And she bought some time, and I think her credibility was so much better because she was able to come back with this pipeline. There was no question, and she got more than she asked for because of that. So I think it's just a bit of a disciplined mindset. That's hard in companies. Uh, it's hard because you're afraid you're going to run out of money. Your, your career is at stake. You Let's also say you believe so passionately about these ideas, sometimes you're too close to it. We were good on growth boards, so a, a kind of a disciplined way to vet the ideas. What's a growth board? A it's growth a... board would be a way, uh, think of it as an investment board. Mm-hmm. Your, your board is, is internal. Internal, yeah. and you're bringing... You're different folks from the different functions. Everybody's agreeing to fund the idea to the next stage. So you're bringing multiple perspectives. Everybody agrees. There's none of this, okay, we're gonna, not going to fund you. And then you leave the room they're like, yeah, but hey, we'll give you another 10 million. Like, none of that.
2: So, so a lot of companies are thinking about and starting up these, these you know, investor boards, growth yeah. boards. Um, you actually talk about in your book this need for a new kind of leader with different kinds of decisions yeah. that are not as clear. How do you pick the right people for these boards? Because I've literally been in discussions where, you know, they're saying, well, who are the right, should it be the executive? Should the CEO be in the room? Should they not be in the room? You know, what kind of talent should we put on them? How did you think that through? I
1: think it's a mix. You need people who have um, obviously expertise at some of them. So I think you need people who really can, if it's a technology company, you need your CTO or somebody from the technology organization. You need to balance the power in a sense. I'd say not have your CEO, and I mean obviously it's a ladder up to the CEO for the big investments, but often um, a, a group of peers who have respect are able to respect the points of view. Do you
2: think most leaders are ready for this second gear, this this kind of decision making that you're describing?
1: I wish they were to be were. on these boards. I I think it requires a, um, a, a allowing a different dynamic and not micromanaging, which. In the core operations, you got checklists, there's a certain degree of digging deep. Over here, there's a lot more faith. You're having to believe in that next lane that these people are good at testing and learning things. That that, that
2: problem-solving muscle in that new lane is almost a uh, a requirement. It is a requirement. Do you think many companies are good at developing creative problem solvers?
1: Uh, They're better at it than they think. Oh, say um, more. Well, this is what I saw. We had a lot of people who were good at that, but we put them into boxes that unless you're, you know, you aspire to operate a ten billion dollar business, you can't make it here. When meanwhile they were really just great at seeding things and getting them to the first customer, and then once they got it validated, they're happy to give it to somebody else, and so, we so ignore how you, those people.
2: How do you find those people and move them to the right place to well, do I that? I think
1: they exist already in your organization. So I, I'm big on I love the the kind of hackathons and idea generation contests and companies. Often the ideas are not going to change the future of the company. That's not why you do it. You do it to vet for the people. Yeah. What are they willing to go for? I think these projects, they, you, they rise out of you're testing yeah. people. I remember once working with, um, with somebody and his idea, his project got killed. People were like, we're not going to do it. And that determination, he was like, I am going to show you. And he came back with such an intensity in the team and they got funded and they so that was a test and he passed it i think
2: so so people may hopefully be listening to this and hearing what you're describing and saying oh wait i'm one of those people yeah how how, how can we help them you know have the courage to find a path to do more of this kind of work?
1: well i think one it's a journey into your own personal development and leadership if you've spent time um, kind of giving yourself permission, the courage to get out and explore. I think you have to spend time in discovery. I don't think you can wait for somebody to come and give you the beautiful answer. So you've been out in the world. You've to customers. You know the world's going this way. It gives you that confidence, and you keep trying different ways at it. So you come back. You come back. You have to have a good champion. Not every company has that. Not everybody can have that. So Sometimes maybe you need to leave or go to another team to get that. Um, So I think a lot of it is just a fortitude that you believe in better and you're going to fight for it.
2: And as a a leader, if you see one of these people starting to emerge, what should you be doing to help encourage them? You have to champion them
1: them like crazy. I think you have to find a way to give them projects. I love a role of figure it out jobs in every team. You don't know what the answer is and we're doing it with blockchain. I don't know go figure it out. You got a year, go figure it out. So there are those roles. I think leaders can do that by the way they give projects, the way they form teams. I think asking for feedback, asking for that truth serum to happen in their organization so that people feel confident that they can come up with ideas, that they can fail in a small way.
2: Well, um, this has been fantastic. I hope uh, there are a lot of those people who do get to hear your words and are inspired uh, by them and perhaps change their course as a result, but just wanted to really thank you for your time. Thank you, Eric. really enjoyed talking
1: to you. Thank you.
0: Absolutely. Thank you
1: very much. Thanks a lot.
0: Many thanks to Eric and Beth for sharing their insights with us today. And thank you for joining us inside the Strategy Room. A transcript of this podcast will be posted on McKinsey.com on the Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice page, where you can also find links to our previous sessions. If you'd like to receive our latest insights, you can sign up for email updates on our website, follow us on Twitter at mckstrategy, and connect with our community on LinkedIn via the McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice page. We look forward to having you join us again soon for our next episode of Inside the Strategy Room.